All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining. I know when your PR team reached out, I was already really interested because I've seen you on Shark Tank before, but when I really dove deep into your background and some research, I was like, wow, this is going to be a really great conversation. So I can't wait. And thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Like, Absolutely. I mean, anywhere that, anywhere that Mark Cuban has gone, just to be in the same <laughs> rarefied air. Absolutely. So I first want to start off with what do you think would be the earliest piece of context that I would have to know to understand you and all that you've accomplished? Uh, that's great. That's interesting. Probably, um, probably selling flowers on street corners in uh, Queens, New York, just because that so much of that fight for survival uh, framed the way I approach the world good and bad by the way anybody who's grown up in tough circumstances sort of wondering you know where their next meal is coming from that doesn't like leave you easily you know so even when your next many meals are already probably assured you still always have a little bit of that um fear behind you so hustling selling flowers on street corners in queens to help take care of uh, my disabled mother and at the same time very committed to getting out of poverty at a very early age what was that experience like growing up in poverty when you were that young? I think um, a lot of things swirling. Uh, anyone out there, lots of people have grown up in poverty to different degrees and dysfunction too. So I was being raised by a single parent um, who had a, a lot of health issues that just compounded over time. So you go through different emotions at different points in your life. When you realize how serious the situation is, uh, there's a degree of hope. You know, you want a white knight. I, as a little kid being raised by a single mom, I always wanted a man to step into the picture and save everything. And then I kind of wanted government to come in and step in and save everything. And, you know, it's just, a, it's to some extent, a series of uh, letdowns uh, where you kind of realize the cavalry isn't coming. And better to learn that lesson younger than later, to be honest. I'm kind of grateful that I did because it's held true throughout my life. Uh, the best piece of professional advice I ever got was to be an agent in your own rescue. So it was a series of sort of letdowns and then taking increasing responsibility for my life and also giving me the permission to make a very radical decision, which we can get into uh, when I was 16 years old. Yeah, let's get into that. What was that radical decision? It was actually inspired by my mother. So to give you a little bit of context, right, uh, uh, I could tell that uh, the situation was getting more dire by the day. Her health was deteriorating. She actually went to college as an adult and um, actually got a GED and went to community college, to her credit, while raising four boys, then went to college, then went and got a master's degree. So, you know, it was this uh, restoration of dignity that had been taken care of, her, taken from her at growing up poor, right? That was her mission, but could not outrun her own disabilities. On the flip side, our situation was like slowly crumbling. It always felt like when I was a kid and um, I felt like the walls were closing in on me. And then I had an epiphany. I watched how she was able to go to college with a GED as an adult. And I thought, you know, I see all these ads in the newspaper saying you can make eight bucks an hour, nine bucks an hour if you're a college student doing XYZ menial job. And I was making $375 an hour as the maintenance man, very glorified title, in the party room, uh, which meant that I my job was to scrape gum from under the tables. These little misbegotten kids left uh, every day. And so, you know, it $375, selling flowers, scalping tickets at concerts isn't going to cut it. And I thought, well, what if I dropped out of high school on purpose and actually got my GD when I was 16, did what my mother did, except do it, you know, two years earlier 
could I get that $8 a year job, right? And that was my first crazy burn the boats moment that ultimately birthed this book. I decided the system isn't set up for me. The system is set up for the average kid with the average setup, right? It's not set up for edge cases. And when I when I told everyone my idea excitedly, like um, school teachers, administrators all thought it was absolutely crazy, nuts. You know, my, my science teacher called me a loser. The one person in my life who actually thought it made a lot of sense was my mother. My mother didn't have a you know pot to piss in, as they say, and died in, in, uh, with $127 in a bank account. But she did leave with me this limitless uh, faith in my ability. And so, but I went through with it. Most important decision of my life, because I had to withstand the pressure of everyone trying to make me conform to conventional wisdom, I had to self-sabotage. What I mean by that is I realized if I don't take steps to to actually box myself into this radical decision, I'm going to waver because you know the truancy police are picking me up, teachers are calling me in, what are you doing? So I actually failed every single class for two years straight, except for typing, because it was it thought it'd be useful. Uh, and uh, and and that was my real burn the boats move. Like burn the boats is about committing to your intuition, being able to stand the social pressure to conform when you believe you're right, but also setting the conditions for you to have no retreat. And in my case, it was failing every single class. Yeah, in that case, would it be correct to presume that the boat? was the school, right? Yeah, the boat, exactly. The boat was, well, the boat, the boat, the burning the boats was the ability to go back and actually get the four-year degree because my, I mean, in hindsight, it all makes sense, right? If I told you the exact conditions I was living in, a mother who's slowly deteriorating, I'm smart enough to pass this test. I could get to college two years early. My intuition told me that college was more of a racket than even high school. Like in my situation, it made more sense. In a typical situation, going to high school makes more sense because half the time you're fucking around and you're just, you're excited for the prom. You know what I mean? But like those, that option wasn't available to me because I was surviving. So my decision 100% made sense. But, you know, the officialdom and systems aren't designed to handle edge cases. And I, I say that throughout the course of my life, if you are an edge case, you have to realize one, people have a hard time um, giving advice to edge cases because they can't relate to it. We all have a bias towards what we know, right? Um, and as a result, you kind of try to make the edge case conform to conventional wisdom. So throughout my entire career, that was the first time, but I've always realized, oh, that's what it is. People have a real hard time relating to the edge cases. How could they? They don't know. And here's another variable. When you're living in squalor or any version of shame, right? Uh, people don't have context so they can't even give you good advice the school teachers no not a single human had ever been to my house uh as a child until the age of 26 the day my mother died so why would they know how dire it was i was wearing fancy clothes to cover it up look in your generation you know now you get shamed you know for having money but by my day you got shamed for having none so you know it wasn't cool to be poor or, or mark zuckerberg a high school uh, college dropout so <laughs> Anyway, I mean, we can get more deeper into it, but I, I, you asked what context would one have to understand me? It's that it's that period of my life between you know ten years old and sixteen years old when I make this first radical decision that ends up being right. So I, I drop out, I do well enough on the GD, I enroll in Queens College at sixteen, and I return to school for shits and giggles. I decide to go to my prom as now at the end of my first year of college with a very, very respectable GPA, like a three, four, whatever it was, and uh, and on the debate team. And they look in the teacher's eyes, administrators went from, in some cases, scorn and disdain and pity, mostly pity, to begrudging admiration. 
So if you make your decisions uh, that are radical based on an intuition that you have about an opportunity, if you will only make those, if you get validated by the people around you, you're never going to make bold decisions because the magnitude of an opportunity has an inverse relationship to the amount of information and data there is to support it. So let me unpack that sentence, right? I saw an opportunity to change my life, which is drop out early and get a better paying job, right? That is a pretty big opportunity considering the alternative of watching our life decline for another couple of years, right? And be no better off. But because that was such an enormous opportunity and people don't normally drop out of high school on purpose, there wasn't a lot of evidence or validation to support it. If I had made my decision dependent upon my well-meaning guidance counselor or my teacher to agree with me, I never would have made the decision. And that decision is the single most important decision I ever made, not just because it helped me believe in myself and, and achieve escape velocity out of poverty. It taught me about compounding interest as it applies to one's career. And we can also get into that. You mentioned the current system isn't designed to support those edge cases. If you could make one change to the system today, how would you change it? Such a good question. I mean, I don't know how I'd implement it, but I would take a bespoke approach to every situation within reason. Obviously, when you have a million students like in New York, you know, there needs to be templates, right? right. It's like it has to be somewhat templatized. But what I found is there just isn't that entrepreneurial approach to a person to have context, right? Like, I'll give you an example. As a kid, I desperately wanted to go to boarding school because I was aware, I was cognizant of how am I going to do well at school if I'm working at an overnight deli from 12 to 8 a.m.? And I'm taking a, a walking around with a butterfly knife because I think I'm going to get jumped on the way home. What do I care about English 101, right? And I think despite our general compassion that a lot of administrators have for a student who can't make you know ends meet or has to worry about a meal, so we give you know subsidized lunch in schools, like it's not about sustenance. It's about lack of infrastructure and support to thrive. And that, in a lot of cases, is fixed, right? Like, we're not going to change the family dynamic. Let's say there's no dad at home. Or let's say somebody's uh, recovering from addiction who's a parent. Lots of kids are born to incapable parents. And yet, I think the system puts Band-Aids on it by saying, like, all right, well, we'll give you a subsidized lunch. You know what I mean? Whereas you realize, like... Imagine what it would be like to try to aspire and get an education when your little brain is half formed. You barely have a good enough judgment to not do something stupid, right? And yet you're supposed to, you know, persevere through those circumstances without a, you know, any foundation. I used to liken it when I was a kid that I was always standing on quicksand. How so how is somebody supposed to be able to aspire, you know, go to English 101, give a shit about grades? When you're going home to a dysfunctional setup, you know, and you're probably in many cases forced to be a parent, right? And I don't think the system um, is set up to recognize how prevalent that fact pattern is. My fact pattern is, you know, is is dire in its own ways, and it's I'm I'm gifted with being able to communicate. I can package it, right? But like that's the only parts that are unusual about me. The fact pattern I was born into is pretty common, and and I'm amazed by how even to this day the system is not like okay, let's this it's so hard for somebody to be successful in this setup. What do we need to give that person, right? Maybe it's not a schedule that goes at 9 a.m. because he's up all night working at the deli. Maybe there's an alternative where you start school at 11. You know, like I don't find that there's a lot of um, optionality or an entrepreneurial approach to each kid. 
When I was doing some research for the show, I found that 90% of people who showed severe depressive symptoms reported difficulty with like work, home, or social activities related to their symptoms. Have you ever been depressed? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I fortunately don't feel like I've been clinically depressed, but I I have been situationally depressed, if that's a you know term, I'm making it up probably, but I am depressed in response to the fat, to the circumstances. But I'm like everybody, I have highs and lows. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I would say I was very depressed and desperate and in some respects self-destructive because I wanted to like get a break. I used to always fantasize about like being in a car crash just so I could spend a week in the hospital and not be in charge. I mean, that's pretty depressed, but I've been depressed at different times in my life. When I went through my divorce, I was you know very depressed. And I think that's natural. The, the clinical depression is, I believe, when nothing's helping, you're hopeless. You know, you lost your will to go forward, but something that's nice to talk about openly. Maybe for those in the audience who might be in one of those waves right now, what would be your advice to them? Uh, great question. Number one, hundred percent I've found throughout the course of my life, things do always get better. Things at every level get better. Society's norms get better. Their values get better. Even right now, like it seems like we live in a complete shit show of total breakdown of culture and society, right? And then you go online, all these terrible impulses, people are being so inhumane, especially as we talk about Pride Month, like we're just in a whack place, right? But when you zoom out, it always gets better. I'll give you an example. I give the commencement address at my college uh, in 2019. And the person that I ran for president against when I was in college in, in 1998, he went on to become a legislator. He beat me. His name was Jose Peralta. Unfortunately, he passed away. But he became a New York State senator, right? In 1998, when I was in college, 70% of Americans opposed gay marriage, right? By the time I gave that commencement address, 20 years later, the number had completely reversed. 70% now supported it. And Jose Peralta, the guy who defeated me for president, ended up passing a deciding vote in New York to pass uh, gay marriage. So what I would say to anybody depressed right now, whether holistically in terms of society or the universe, or specifically as it pertains to your life, things always get better. So if you just, it sounds so damn cliche and corny, just commit yourself to surviving one more day, you'll get there. Number two, if you're depressed about something to do with your life not going well or something you did wrong or being judged, um, the thing I wish I could tell the younger version of myself is that nobody gives a shit. It would have saved me so much emotional, mental energy. Like that is an, like shockingly true. And unfortunately, until life brings you to your knees and you get a little older, you don't know that. And like, even if I say that anybody under the age of 25 is like, yeah, but, you know, like, no, no, nobody really cares that much. Because ask yourself, how much do you care? Like, especially if you're a little gossipy because you're in a shitty mood, whatever. Like, you're only going to spend 30 seconds, you know, critiquing somebody else because then you're back to your own problems, right? That's that, that's the other thing. I, I want to go on and on because if anybody's depressed, I don't, I'm, I'm going through the range of why you might be unhappy. <laughs> um, the other point. There is one job that you cannot outsource. And I discovered this when I went through my divorce and life brought me to my knees. And that job is truly to love and accept yourself. I always say, if not you, then who? Why would you expect anybody else to love you more than you're capable of loving yourself? And um, we all are conditioned to believe that there's one more person that's going to complete us. And again, as you go through life and life brings you to your knees, that's a fiction. Nobody completes you because you're already born whole. And if you meditate on that, the idea that like you really do have everything you need to stand on your own two feet, 
uh, a lot of people find themselves in bad situations because we believe that we are missing something and we look for somebody who is the opposite of us because they're going to complete us. That's actually not true. You want to look for people in your life that are force multipliers that have value alignment with you. You don't choose people because they're gap filling something that you don't like about yourself, right? Because that's really self-loathing. And so my overarching message, if if the source of somebody's sadness right now is yearning for somebody to complete them or disappointment that somebody they love, you know, rejected them. The reality is you were born whole. I did not discover that until I went to rock bottom, depressed post-divorce. I realized, oh, like it's my job to love myself and I have everything within my ability. And the universe teaches us harsh lessons sometimes. And maybe that's what the universe is trying to teach me. Yeah, I think more people need to be talking about mental health. I think it's got to become more open and a dialogue that we can all talk about openly without having that be labeled as taboo. But now that we move into the career world a little bit, after you got your GED, you graduated from Fordham and you basically accomplished your educational goals. What was next? Yeah. So, um, well, priority number one was to to achieve escape velocity out of poverty, right? So to, to put this in context, at 16 years old, I dropped out of high school. I was probably at that point making like 15 bucks, five bucks an hour rather at a deli. By the time I turned uh, 26 on April 2nd, 2001, I had become press secretary to the mayor of New York. I was the youngest press secretary in history and uh, making $100,000 a year. So I went from 375, five bucks an hour to a hundred grand in a span of a decade all with an attempt to achieve um, velocity out of poverty. My mother died that morning, unfortunately. So, you know, back to this doesn't have a happy ending because there are no happy endings guaranteed, but she died that morning. Uh, my instincts were still correct that this was a was an emergency. I just couldn't get it done in time. So job number one was I made a decision early on that uh, I don't want to be a victim. And I do think to some we all don't have a choice to be victimized. Lots of times we're all victimized at any point in our life. Everybody listening to this has been victimized or will be victimized. But the number one job you have when you are a victim is to not protect your reputation or or worry about um, uh, you know what was me. Uh, it's to heal, but to refuse to allow your identity to become enmeshed with being a victim. And so I made a decision early on that uh, things no longer happen to me. I happen to things, which has been my orientation my whole time. Once I achieved um, a degree of comfort, then it really became about where is the ceiling on my potential? Like now that I've sort of hacked the codes, this burn the boats mentality, what kinds of situations can I put myself in where I am woefully unprepared and how did, let me tap into that crisis decision-making, the clarity of it that I had when I was 16. Let me try to manufacture it without having to have a gun to my head, right? And so I would constantly take on these really difficult jobs, running an NFL team, you know, launching a venture fund, eventually teaching at Harvard Business School, going on Shark Tank, then creating my own TV show. I realized uh, relatively early, another blessing, that the joy of living is in the striving and figuring out the ceiling on our potential. Any marathon runner will tell you the melancholy they have after the race, not while they're training. And so the reason is, is because we really enjoy the pursuit more than we enjoy the victory. And um, so the long, it's a long way of saying my life has become a series of successive attempts to push the, the envelope to feel like what is the ceiling of my capacity uh, and put myself in ever more uncomfortable situations, which is what ultimately led me to write the book. I feel like when we're younger, we feel that we can pretty much do anything. Like even sometimes I think that, how do we find or how do we know what our actual ceiling of potential is? 
That's a great question. I mean, I talk about this with parents because par parents, they love to reject the title of my book, which is fine. Like, <laughs> I deliberately chose a very bombastic book, right? Burn the boat. Right. It's not like burn the boats with you in it. Burn the boats to hell with everyone else. It's actually a very empathetic book that talks a lot about um, imposter syndrome, anxiety. All the boats are metaphors, right? For the things that hold us back. But when I talk to parents, they're just so entrenched in this belief that they need to protect their kids by inculcating this idea that you need a backup plan. And the research shows the opposite, that if you, the mere contemplation of a backup plan is exactly the thing that forces you to need one for very simple reasons. If you think about it, if you do really, really hard things. I just worked on my book for unrelenting, right? It was so hard, compromised my health, my sleep, my life, because I cared about the goal, right? And it became a bestseller. Um, but like that, if I, at any moment allowed myself to indulge in like, uh, maybe like, let me start preparing for mediocrity. What if it didn't work out? That energy leakage of worrying about an alternative course is enough to make me not put all my energy in. So to answer your question for those trying to figure it out, like you don't have to worry about it. Like you'll know when the moment comes that it turns out you're not meant to be messy, right? And that's what I find parents overly worry about. They're like, I really have to tell my kids like they, they don't have what it takes to be Taylor Swift. And it's like, why do you think was it hard for you to choose a soul crushing job? Was that like a hard decision to figure out to have a dead end job that you hate? I was like, no, we know how to survive. Your child will know how to feed themselves. They're they have it in their you know, and their amygdala will be flashing like, oh shit, I got to eat today. They'll they'll take a crappy job. So I would say to any young person, like like you do what feels natural. Number one, but two, there is this pressure to like get the first job that reflects the ultimate ambition and one that's not realistic and two that's too impatient my view is like you want to be moving due north in the general direction of your ambition but understand that you got to make little compromises along the way so if you look at every career every job i've had and they they seem like disparate right government 911 overseeing the trade center then sports whatever i always was able to leverage something that i was doing today to bring me closer to what I want to really be doing tomorrow. I always wanted to be somebody who was building companies. I always, always wanted to be somebody talking to you or some kid out there who's depressed about, let me tell you how I hack the codes. Like that has been my meta purpose, right? But I also knew that without authority, without being wealthy or own companies or Shark Tank, people don't listen to your message, right? Like I had a vision. But my first job involves scraping gum at McDonald's. <laughs> so to anyone out there, I'd say, number one, don't fucking worry about it. Go ahead and like, you know, try everything. Number two, you can't break anything in your 20s that you can't fix in your 30s. And and three, like, don't worry about your fallback plan. You will protect yourself and go get that job at the gas station if that's what's called for, if should you need to. I think a lot of people sometimes will get certain jobs just to impress others, whether that be their friends or family or other people that they look up to. For example, nowadays we see a lot of college students going directly to big tech companies like Google or Microsoft, but maybe that's not actually what they want to do. What would be your advice to graduating college students right now? Such a great question. Um, I would, I would talk about. I talk about this in my book, uh, Burn the Boats, about how society has a bias towards incrementalism to believe that you must do A before B before C. It's like everywhere. And one, it's an organizing principle, puts people in like bands, right? You'll one day you'll be a marketing manager, then you'll get a promotion to a director. And like, and we buy into these to incrementalism subconsciously. Our parents even teach us about it subconsciously, right? So I would I have done the complete opposite in my life. Before I choose incrementalism, I contemplate step change. I say, like, all right, what if I bypassed this step, like high school, right? What if I bypassed the last couple of years? What if I bypassed this step? Is that realistic? Is that preferable? 
is that possible, right? So I would say to anyone who is taking a job as a consultant after out of Harvard Business School because they believe that to do X Y Z, you know, you need to have more exposure, like. I would be very skeptical of these truisms that are passed on from generation to generation that involve incrementalism and instead always choose step change. It's like the advice I give my kids. I said, always choose defiance before choosing acceptance because you can't go the other way around. If you choose acceptance, you never get around to defiance. Always choose defiance and and the world will shove it down your throat if at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do. And so those are two separate thoughts. That's more like to your previous question. Like, but back to um, kids coming out of college, like just make, if you're choosing a job based upon some expectation that it's life has to unfold like sedimentary rock, like layer upon layer, that's actually not true. You know, you know, I say to the victor go the spoils, the spoils go to those who defy the progression and take. Now, the problem is when you do that, a few things happen. People in your peer group who um, aren't making those moves uh, or maybe jealous will try to cut you down and they'll be looking at you like, where do you get off? And two, because of whatever you're trying to do, you haven't done before, there will be a degree to which the world tries to put you in a box, right? I remember when I first started doing investing, I was like, what does a sports executive know about investing, right? When I first started running the Jets and what does a government employee know about running a football team? And when I went to Harvard for the first time, it's like, you don't even have a PhD, right? So each of those times, it was on me to have to absorb those body blows and just take those pits, knowing like, you'll see, right? Like, so I would say to anybody young out there, one, consider incremental uh, step change. Two, uh, be prepared for the world around you to try to put you in a box. And now we all can't make it through life on our own. Make sure to have somebody in your foxhole a boy, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, who is lifting up and confirming your impression and instinct about what you might be capable of. You always need those first believers, those champions who see what you see, or even more than what you see about what you're capable of. And I find where a lot of people go wrong because you can't fight a two front war is like, you believe you can do something great and grand, but you have no support system. You have parents who don't believe you or whatever, but then you have a partner and you have an enemy in your foxhole who's like, making maybe undercutting remarks, rolling their eyes a little bit, like, oh, getting ahead of yourself. Be really careful when you're, if you're dating somebody who makes those snide little remarks and you find yourself rationalizing, like, I really like them. They put me in my place. Like, well, they, but they, they, you know, they ground me. I'm like, no, only airplanes are grounded. And it's usually a bad thing. Like, <laughs> like we don't, our, I don't know about you. The voice in my head does a really damn good job putting me in my place. I have yeah. to resist. <laughs> and so when you have a partner, who's echoing your worst impulses, your worst self-talk, uh, it really, really undermine you. I know we cover a lot in that that, that segment, but uh, I'm really passionate, especially for young people. Like these decisions are so hard, so hard and so important to get right. And you could be focusing on all these other things and you realize, oh, the reason why you're not getting anywhere is because you wake up every day to somebody who's kind of subtly undercutting you because they're insecure that if maybe you get too big for yourself, you'll leave them. People yeah. are really controlling and they have lots of motivated motivations for the, for the things they do. I wrote my book more as a narrative, hoping that, cause that's a very hard thing to communicate in a business book. That's very prescriptive, right? I wanted to more talk in narrative so I could tell stories. So people could be like, Oh, I, I kind of understand. I can relate to that. You know, I agree. I think there's a lot of value in that segment right there. We're definitely going to clip that up and share that out to the world. But now that we get into some other things, you've had a lot of pain throughout your life. How have you been able to turn pain into a gift? I think 
the the well the pain is an unlock because we're all carrying around uh, around pain so let me put it in a business context i believe the italians have a great phrase called the fish rots from the head what it simply means obviously is that leadership matters and you could show me any any effect downstream i could walk into a retail store and see something wrong be like i could probably trace it pretty much back to the top of the company right and so leadership matters people matter and the greatest unlock in human beings is self-awareness now, why do we resist self-awareness? Because we're afraid of what we might find. So we cling to excuses. We cling to our cloak, you know, our disguises, whatever it takes. When we don't have self-awareness, we do everything to conceal it, right? And But when you conceal whatever it is you're carrying, there you, you, you lose opportunities for growth. So I'm getting to the point um, where pain can be a gift is if you openly share things most people feel like they can't share because it's too embarrassing, it's too humiliating, it's too painful. If you openly share those things, then you've created space for others to do the same, right? Because people respond to vulnerability with vulnerability. When they begin to share the vulnerability, that might be the thing that was preventing them from being self-aware. So you're really, I find, and I've seen this pattern over and over again, when I talk about having one testicle because one got removed or you know, how that made me infertile getting radiation treatments or my divorce, all topics that I wish I didn't talk about, but honestly don't care. And there's no shame in this world. When I do that and I get a note from somebody, a DM is like a wave of peace washed over me because you talked about it. When I talk about the guilt and anger and sadness of being put in a position to take care of a parent unnaturally at 16, somebody out there is like, oh my God, I've been carrying this for a long time. Right? So my my own my point is the pain when you realize that um what you can do with it as a powerful tool to unlock other people you can't stop and then the second part uh is i think i witnessed something when i was very young the power of intervention or the absence of it right if somebody had intervened in our life and helped my mother wouldn't be dead right and um, there was no need for the dysfunction that we lived in. There were lots of people who could have intervened. And there's two ways to respond to that, which I think a lot of people choose the, what I'm about to say as the way they respond. You know what? Nobody helped me. So, you know, you you suck it up, right? Or, damn, if somebody had really helped me, it could have made a big difference. And so I'm going to try to do the same thing because, wow, that is very impactful. And I choose that. I choose to say... I was pretty well positioned to be able to handle the burden I handled, obviously, right? Many others aren't. And so let me stay in a place of empathy. Let me keep the pain raw and so, and unhealed. I always say I don't want to heal because I think the, the pain is what encapsulates my empathy. Um, use the pain as a way to stay empathetic because you can make such a massive trajectory changing impact on somebody's life. So would I have wished to have been born in more of a functional environment? Of course. Do I judge anybody who is? Absolutely not, because I know that there's a lot of damage that, I, that comes with it. But I do think at the end of the day, it's a massive gift and, a, and an edge in business and in personal life. When I was in elementary school, I was actually bullied a lot. And throughout the years, it's significantly changed. But that time period gave me a high level of motivation to do the things that I don't know if I would have done otherwise. Do you think the circumstances you had when you were younger, if instead you were put into like a completely functional point in time, maybe you wouldn't be where you are today? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm sorry you were bullied. I want to go back oh, to yeah. the <laughs> version of you and give you a hug. People can be so cruel for no reason, but you seem like a beautiful, wonderful human being. So <laughs> I want to go kick everybody's ass on your back. Um, <laughs> no, 
I would not. Like, I would not have... Well, let's talk about compounding, which we didn't get into. Very important, yep. right? Number one financial principle in the world, no question, is compound interest, as Warren Buffett rightfully says, right? Warren Buffett is the god of all things. Uh, my number one favorite person all around in the world, not because of his money, but because of his values, the way he lives his life. Money is irrelevant. But um, compounding applies equally to your professional success, even more so than it does to money, right? The sooner you do things, the harder you run earlier in your life, the more time you have to reap exponential returns over time. So by virtue of me um, having a gun to my head, dropping in high school, right? I was a reporter by the time I was 17. I had my own call. I won investigative reports by the time I was 18. By the time I was 19, Carl Bernstein had bought an interest in the newspaper and nominated, nominated me for a Pulitzer Prize. I've been featured in multiple newspapers. By the time I'm 23, I'm in law school. I'm on Fordham Law Review. And by 26, I'm press secretary of the mayor of New York. Because I'm 26, by the time I'm 29, I'm running the New York Jets of a football team. By the time I'm 40, I now have a minority interest in an NFL team. I'm effectively an owner. I'm on Shark Tank by 41, right? compounding. And so the answer to your question is, I would not have tapped into compounding if I didn't have the urgent, which is why I wrote my book. Like I wrote Burn the Boats not for the self-possessed and the arrogant and who, who are a little bit careless with other people's. I wrote it for those who self-select out of ambition, either because they don't have the confidence or they don't have the crisis. So my book is an attempt to prosthetically install into somebody listening right now who's like, I'm just not a risk taker or, you know what I mean? Or I have no need to be a risk taker because I have all the time in the world. I'm just going to smoke a bowl, you know, like what I'm telling you is you're on the clock and the sooner you could do things earlier, the more. So the long story short, I think my life would have been, I would have went to a better college and better. I just simply mean, you know, rankings. Right. And I would have had probably more of an academic, you know, life. But I might have ended up being a lawyer. I mean, I, I actually graduated law school, right? And I have no more horrifying thought than actually being a practicing lawyer. Like, it's like I would die. No offense to the lawyers out there. I love you all, and I hire many of you. But and I pay your bills happily. But I would, never, <laughs> but I would never have done any of those things. And also, here's the other point: like the book, I was on the stage at Central Park, talking in front of sixty thousand people after Harry and you know and uh, Megan had given a talk on behalf of the Pope, right? Like talking about how when i was a little kid catholic church provided free you know food for me on holidays and like and helping raise money for migrants and refugees like there's no way that i would have the authority to talk to 60,000 people on central park if i also hadn't run the gauntlet right so right. if you look at mom's contribution to the universe and my abject poverty the universe is way way better off that matt higgins went through what he went through than if i hadn't so i paid a price we all pay a price but the universe, net net, it's a positive. No, I believe that we all have a purpose on the world. And I think your purpose was to share your story and create that impact at scale for others. But one question I did have is I was looking over some of the notes that your PR team sent over for this interview. And I noticed that you have an app on your phone that reminds you five times a day that you're going to die. Why? Yeah, let's actually, let's pull it up right now. Let's see. Let me see, young man. Let me tell you, <laughs> we've confirmed. Oh, you are going to die too, it turns out. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. The app is called We Croak. And um, I'll give you the quick story. So I had testicular cancer. I went through Sloan Kettering. Uh, there was a period where I thought I you know, might not get through it. There always is, right? You don't get the And they thought it was much more advanced at first. I had my testicle removed, got radiation for a month. But um, uh, what I found when I came out the other side of it, uh, I missed the the awareness that most of the things I think about on any given day do not hold up 
against the juxtaposition of uh, imminent death. And I missed the fact that it was so clarifying. Like, why am I worried about a brownstone in Brooklyn? Or why am I worried about a VP title? All this stuff I called it zero time. None of my thoughts could hold up against the idea that I would die. And I was like, well, that's actually a pretty empty life. And the only thing I actually did care about was my epitaph saying, herein lies a dad who did the best he could. So I was like, oh, so I really want to be the right thing for my children in a way that I didn't have. That was number one, but I missed it. And I was like, where did it go? And I started researching and you realize the happiest people on earth are in Bhutan and they contemplate death five times a day. And what and I was like, really? It's so morbid, as many people listening to this will presume. But what ends up happening is it brings you back to the moment and you realize most of the things that torture us are emanate from the uncertainty and emanate from anxiety about day-to-day mundane stuff. And if you are ever mindful of your mortality, you just don't care about slight insults. And you are much more locked into the flowers, the air, your loved ones, whatever. So five times a day, this app gives me a message. I'll tell you the one that just popped up. We have the choice to use the gift of our life to make the world a better place or not to bother. Jane Goodall. So some of them are very, very, very um, explicit. Some of them are a little more, you know, like nebulous. And they're always lyrical. This is the one I keep on my home screen. Life is not lost by dying. Life is lost minute by minute day by dragging day in all the small uncaring ways, which is true, by the way, right? Yeah, you don't die like you and I, if we die tomorrow, hopefully not, this will be our last interview. And I, think yeah. but if we were to die, um, like we didn't die tomorrow, we died slowly, cumulatively every single day, minute by minute. Right. And so yeah. I think if we hold on to that, we realize like, oh, this is a very precious minute. I'm not going to squander it. And so that's why I do it. I've been talking more about it lately. I love the reaction to it. People will download this app. I don't know. You know, what's funny. I talk about the people who create this app never talk to me. Watch. It's like some weird North Korean plot, you know, to make everybody very, very focused on death. But not like I have, I've never heard from the app creators, but people download the app and they're like, this has changed my life. So that's so counterintuitive, right? Because it sounds like a morbid thought. Think about your mortality. Yeah. I, in fact, I love when people ask about it because some days I don't do it. And I realize like, oh, I don't feel as happy. And then I just, right now I just did it. I'm like, all oh, right, we're dying. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you mentioned in past interviews that you tend not to think about your legacy um, because you generally don't care about that. And instead you prefer to live in the present. I was thinking about this a little bit last night and I realized I think legacy is really built off of what we do today and the impact that it has. I mean, I feel like the way people will remember you is for what you did in the present. What would be your advice to people who might be caring a lot about their legacy? I mean, I think the, the, the words matter and there's like, there's nuance. So it's questions like, what are you really caring about? Legacy, the word is different than intentionality, right? So let's like deconstruct how I'm using the word legacy when I say I don't care about legacy. Legacy presumes the ego survives death. In fact, I think legacy is the ego's attempt to rule from the grave, right? So in order for me to care about legacy, I have to be cognizant of it and around to see it, right? Like, hey, how do y'all, where's my statue? You know what I mean? Like, right. where is, I hope I, do I get a parade? You know, so that's what I'm saying. Like, the idea of worrying about that is really just ego. Now, impact is different. Desiring to have impact, desiring to live an intentional life is about being mindful of our time here, right? And making the most of it. I care very much about being intentional. I care very much about impact, care very much about making my time here. So for those who really care about legacy from an ego standpoint, I would say I'm betting I'm right that you're wasting your time. 
right? Like that, unless we sit in that box and we're aware, which is a really shitty thought, right? That we're like, hey, what's going on upstairs? Like, is everybody celebrating me? Legacy is kind of a waste of time. It's ego. But being a very intentional focus on impact makes a ton of sense, obviously. Totally agree. And as we wrap it up here, what would be your takeaways for the audience and where they can learn more about your book, Burn the Boats? Well, first of all, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I would argue to anybody out there who's uh, your generation, make sure you're investing in LinkedIn because it's a very powerful platform. So I'll skip the social media lessons for for a, for a, for another day. I, my advice is audit the audit the unspoken rules because I find those are the most insidious and those are the ones that are having the greatest impact on you. We covered a little bit of them in this talk, right? The idea of uh, incrementalism that your parents are, are biased towards. Um, I'll tell you. At the end of my Harvard class, I ask uh, the the, uh, the speakers always, what would you like to tell people in this room? And the answer is like remarkably almost always the same. I would say 90% of the most talented people I bring to that class give the same answer. And they would say, trust that you'll just figure it out. I look back and think about how much I was scrambling to find the answers, the data, and in the reality, the most important skill I have was my belief that I would figure it out. So what I would say to anybody listening, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to consciously work to lower the bar to your action, to your next step, not raise the bar. So let's unpack that. I find people who never get off the ground with a, a grand idea, usually it's because they've erected the bar so high that they, they can't possibly clear it. I need to have a year's worth of savings. I need to have the support of my spouse. I need to have, you know what I mean? Like I need to have data. And I think you have to be very conscious to lower the bar only insofar to clear it, to take the next decision that brings you closer to it. Right. So, you know what I mean? Like, okay, what's it going to take for me to get going and have enough trust that the unknowns, you will figure it out. And you'll cultivate the resilience to get better and better at just figuring it out. So if if I've made my whole life about that, right? Like when I went to Harvard, it was the first time I ever worked into a classroom. I didn't know how to teach, but I had to trust that I would figure it out and that I would bring the same level of you know tenacity and conviction uh, and commitment that I do to everything else. And now it's one of the highest rated programs at the business school, right? So, and we have Kim Kardashian, Scarlett Johansson, like it's crazy, this course, right? So- um, I would say my number one piece of advice, no one's going to tell you this. And if you don't know, you just don't know. You'll spend so much energy trying to prove out your thesis when what you should be doing is asking yourself, what's the bare minimum I would need to know or believe or prove that would make me text, take the next step towards this idea? And I find a lot of people who are either not confident or insecure or don't have a support system believe they have to have so much figured out that they never even get off the ground. Any other piece of advice? We talked about it a bit. It's so important. I married the greatest force multiplier in, 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 on earth, my wife, Sarah. She is the reason why I'm on Shark Tank, why I teach at Harvard. This isn't like, a, oh, thank you, honey, for supporting me. She unlocks me. Together, we are a force of nature. I would say to anybody out there listening, we don't talk about this enough. If you choose the wrong partner and you have what is effectively... Uh, not an ally in your foxhole, you'll never reach your full potential. So, you know, I find the reasons why people don't get what they want in relationships is one, they either don't know it's out there or two, they don't think they deserve it. So number number two, you deserve it. You deserve the best. And number one, it's out there. If you can conceive of it, it exists. Unless you're completely unre unrealistic and you watch <laughs> movies. But, you know, so that's my, I know I sound like Boomer, 
given given speeches, but you know, that's the to me the most important advice I could give you. Yeah, I mean, if you're passionate about something and you want to build something, just go ahead and do it, right? The bar today for what it costs to start a business, whether that be a SaaS business, an online business, or even a content business, is just so low, right? It could be as little as just $50, and it's amazing. It's breathtaking. Like I did an article, anybody listening to this, Google an article, Matt Higgins, CNBC, AI, I don't know, you'll find it. I did an article to basically illustrate that point that, you know, back in my day, I had to hawk flowers to have a shot, right? And that wasn't very scalable. Now AI can enable you to launch a business in hours with under a hundred bucks. And so I, AI is the great greatest excuse killer. And it's the greatest equalizer. So one, anyone listening, it's eliminated your excuses for why you're not going after what you're going after. And number two, it's the great equalizer. If part of your excuses are pedigree, money, supports, it's also eliminated those. And it is a race. Other times, you know, when there's a new technology, crypto, whatever, it sometimes pays to be a middle rather than early, you know, or like this is one time in life where it's the most um, transformative technological revolution of my lifetime, more so than even the uh, e-commerce or the internet. And there's, it pays to be early. And don't wait to be spoon-fed AI tools. You should spend your time on Twitter and you should absorb every AI thread on Twitter and just play with the tools. Mid-Journey, Dante for chatbots, bots, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Captions.ai for, uh, for, uh, for video. Like every single tool is out there, but, but your generation in particular has such a great advantage because People in my generation are going to wait, be reluctant. You know, the, my generation mocks TikTok when it comes along. Right. And they were always late to the party. Good. Don't come to the party for another six months. We're going <laughs> to enjoy this party. But anybody out there who's got a grand idea, you really lost all your excuses. So it's kind of on you. You know, maybe a year ago it wasn't. And, but you can't come up with a valid excuse to me right now for why you can't at least give a shot moving, advancing an idea for a business. Well, all right. Thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time to join the show. I greatly enjoyed our conversation. For those in the audience, we'll have a link to Matt's book, Burn the Boats, in the episode description below. Highly recommend you check it out. Purchase the book. It's a great read. And thank you, Matt, for joining. Thank Appreciate you. It. And for anybody out there um, who, who reads the book, uh, and uh, feels like it's inspired change, please DM me. I love the DMs. Honestly, I'm a human being too. I need to resupply my efforts every day. So those messages saying, hey, Matt, I feel seen, uh, gets me going another day, doing interviews like this, reaching more people. So trust me, it does not go into a, into a vortex. It goes into my mind and helps me get up another day. So thank you for giving me your platform and uh, great talking to you.